Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Who Are We Looking For? It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 21st, 2021, the fifth Sunday in Lent. Our gospel reading this week begins with desire. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The setting is Jerusalem. The occasion is Passover, and the people expressing the desire are Gentiles, visiting the city for its traditional religious festivities. The Gospel doesn't tell us how many Gentiles come seeking Jesus, or why they're interested in him. Are they curious about his message and his parables? Are they chasing spectacle, hoping to see a rumored miracle worker walk on water or heal a blind man? Maybe they're skeptics or troublemakers looking to pick a fight with the controversial Messiah. Or maybe they're just bored and seeking a distraction. We don't know. But I'm grateful that the text leaves their motivations a mystery, because when I look at my own life, I recognize a Gentile's request in all of these guises. I know what it's like to want Jesus in earnest, to want his presence, his guidance, his example, and his companionship. I know what it's like to want not him, but things from him. Safety, health, immunity, ease. I know what it's like to want a confrontation, a no-holds-barred opportunity to express my disappointment, my sorrow, my anger, and my bewilderment at who Jesus is compared to who I want him to be. And finally, I know what it's like not to want him at all, what it feels like to shelve all spiritual desire and allow my faith to fade into the background of my life and consciousness. I cycle between these wants. My heart for Jesus expands and constricts. My desire to see him waxes and wanes. And my motives for seeking him grow clearer and murkier by turns. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. On its face, it's such a simple request, but... It cuts to the heart of spiritual growth, stagnation, and defeat. Do we want to see Jesus? Where does desire register in our spiritual lives right now? During this season of Lent, are we asking to see the Jesus we've heard so much about? If yes, which Jesus do we wish to see? The teacher, the healer, the peacemaker, the troublemaker? Why are we interested? Or, if we're not asking and seeking, then the question shifts and we have to ask it differently. Why is Jesus not on our radars? Does seeing him feel impossible right now? Uninteresting, irrelevant. Has he become so familiar to us that he's faded away entirely? Immediately following the Gentiles' request, Jesus launches into a meditation on his death. He says that his hour has come. He describes himself as a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying in order to bear much fruit. He invites his followers to hate their lives in this world and keep them instead for eternal life. He admits that he's afraid. Now my soul is troubled. And finally, he describes the cross as a gathering place of agony, glory, unity, and communion. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In a few weeks, many of us will gather, online or in person, to remember Jesus' death and keep vigil at the cross. 
as COVID restrictions allow, we'll meditate, pray, sing, and weep. Alone or with others, we'll kneel or sing or chant or fast, all in the hopes of entering into the deep mystery of the crucifixion. All in the hopes of honoring what Jesus made possible when he was lifted up from the earth. But for those of us who've grown up in the faith, I fear that the actual scandal and strangeness of Jesus' death has perhaps long faded away. Do we know anymore which Jesus we wish to see? We're used to worshipping in front of a crucifix. We cross ourselves without thinking or wear tiny replicas of the cross around our necks. But what would happen, I wonder, if we could shake ourselves out of our familiarity for a few minutes and see with new eyes what happened on Good Friday? God died. Jesus willingly took the violence, the contempt, and the hatred of this world and absorbed them all into his own body. He chose to be the victim, the scapegoat, the sacrifice. He refused to waver in his message of universal love, grace, and liberation, knowing full well that the message would cost him his life. He declared solidarity for all time with those who are abandoned, colonized, oppressed, accused, imprisoned, beaten, mocked, and murdered. He burst open like a seed so that new life would grow and replenish the earth. He took an instrument of torture and turned it into a vehicle of hospitality and communion for all people everywhere. He loved and he loved and he loved all the way to the end. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. If we, like the Gentiles, want to see Jesus, we have to be willing to look at the cross. Yes, Jesus was and is many things, teacher, healer, companion, and Lord, and it is important that we experience him in all of these ways. But the center, the heart of who he is, is revealed at the cross. The cross makes true sight possible. In my own life, I often flinch away from the Jesus of the Passion, the vulnerable, broken Jesus, because I want a muscular, superhero Jesus instead. I want the dramatic rescue the quick save. I don't want to learn the discipline of waiting at the tomb, in the shadowed place, in the realm where my questions far outnumber the answers. I am impatient for resurrection and scorn everything that comes before it. I don't think I'm alone in this struggle. Many of us wrestle with the Jesus of Holy Week because he looks so different from what we expect in a Savior. Often, we're not entirely sure who we're looking for. In the end, what this week's gospel teaches us is that I don't have to strain and strive to see Jesus. As he told those Gentile seekers 2,000 years ago, he is the one who draws and gathers all people to himself. He is the one who allows himself to be lifted up so that what is murky or overwhelming or frightening, God, in his indecipherable otherness, comes close and becomes visible. In other words, God desires steadily when I desire unsteadily. He loves whether I love or not. It has taken me a long time to lean into this possibility, and it still eludes me sometimes. But I choose to trust this as best I can. Jesus' longing for me is the ground upon which all of my desire, however abundant or stingy, rests. He wishes to see me, to see all of us, far more urgently than we'll ever wish to see him. This isn't a rebuke. It isn't an invitation to self-loathing or shame. Rather, it is a promise and a refuge. We love because he loves first. 
We love because the cross draws us towards love. Its power is as compelling as it is mysterious. The cross pulls us towards God and towards each other, a vast and complicated gathering place. Whether or not I want to see Jesus, here he is drawing me. This is the solid ground we stand on, stark, holy, strange, and beautiful. For books this week, Dan reviews 1491 New Revelations About the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. What was the world really like that Christopher Columbus encountered when he landed on an island in the Bahamas on October 12, 1492? Exactly who were the first Americans? The most popular, the most powerful, and the most misleading stereotype is that he discovered a sort of timeless and unspoiled Eden and a people who lived, as it were, outside of history. In this view, the Indians were, quote, suspended in time, touching nothing and untouched themselves, like ghostly presences on the landscape, end quote. To take just one example, in 1580, Michel de Montaigne described the peoples of the Amazon as having had, quote, no knowledge of numbers, no terms for governor or political superior, no practice of subordination or of riches or of poverty or clothing or agriculture or metals. They lived, he said, without toil or travail in a bounteous forest that furnishes them abundantly with all they need. They are still in that blessed state of desiring nothing beyond what is ordained by their natural necessities. For them, anything further is superfluous. End quote. Charles Mann's award-winning book offers a radical challenge to these conventional ideas. He deconstructs the many myths about the ignorant, uncivilized, noble, or vicious savages. The so-called so New World that Columbus encounter turns out to be very old, densely populated, and highly advanced. The Western Hemisphere before 1492 exhibited a staggering diversity of societies, a tumult of languages, about 12,000 of them, about 1,200 of them, trade and culture, a region where tens of millions of people lived and hated and worshipped as people everywhere do. Witness their art, architecture, sophisticated irrigation projects, genetic engineering of maize and slash-and-burn forest management, these Indian societies, the Incas, biggest empire on earth at its heyday, the Maya, the Aztecs, Mexico as the center of the world, the Amazonians, etc., were much older, grander, and complex than was first imagined. Man writes with an encyclopedic knowledge of the emerging scholarship on these subjects. He incorporates the latest findings from history, archaeology, anthropology, molecular biology, church archives, ethnography, genetics, geology, linguistics, and more. He writes with the care of a scholar, acknowledging that the questions surrounding these subjects are complex, controversial, at times speculative, and often disputed. He lets everyone have their say and allows his readers to draw their own conclusions. He also writes with the literary flair of a fantastic journalist storyteller. I could not put this book down and count it as one of the most fascinating reads in the last five years. For more on this subject, see Mann's sequel to 1491 called 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. For movie review this week, Dan looks at the 2020 Temple Prize virtual ceremony for Dr. Francis Collins. This isn't a movie like we normally review in this space. Rather, it's an 85-minute YouTube of the live 2020 Templeton Prize virtual ceremony for Dr. Francis Collins, 
that took place last September at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. And let me be clear, I wish this video would be shown in every church in the country. Francis Collins has been a geneticist, a physician, the head of the Human Genome Project, and, since August 2009, the head of the National Institutes of Health, with its $42 billion budget and 6,000 research scientists. He's one of the country's most important public intellectuals and an outspoken Christian. See his book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief in God. After a few remarks by the Templeton people, the video begins with an eight-minute biographical overview of Collins' remarkable life. Then, there are seven short pieces congratulating Collins, by Deborah Harzma, an astronomer who is the president of BioLogos, an institute founded by Collins and his wife to promote the harmony of science and religion, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright of Oxford, the operatic singer Renee Fleming, the primatologist Jane Goodall, the Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and then former Presidents Bush and Obama. Upon receiving the award, Collins gives a 20-minute talk that challenges us to become depolarizers in our badly divided country. And lastly, for poems this week, Mercy by John F. Dean. Unholy we sang this morning and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked the Christ figure hung splayed on bloodied beams above us. Devious God, dweller in shadows, mercy on us. Immortal, cross-shattered Christ, your gentling grace down upon us. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 21st, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.